0: The drive to declare a climate emergency has swept much of the world. According to the Climate Emergency Declaration website, 2,094 jurisdictions in 38 countries have declared a climate emergency. Populations covered by jurisdictions that have declared a climate emergency amount to over 1 billion citizens. But the emergency is nowhere to be found in the real world. The so-called global average temperature has only risen about 1.2 degrees Celsius since 1880, despite a nearly 50% rise in CO2 levels in the atmosphere. Yet it was during this period when one would expect the most temperature increase due to CO2 rise. However, increasing CO2 levels in the atmosphere have resulted in huge benefits to increasing productivity of the biosphere including a massive increase in crop yield. The U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration database of statewide extreme weather records shows that extreme weather records were mostly set in the 1930s and practically nothing is happening today. Similarly, sea level rise and ocean pH levels are not a problem and polar bears are thriving. (laughs) So Jay, if there's no climate emergency happening that we can actually see or measure, What's driving the scare? Well,
1: ignorance is driving the scare. I've been involved in models most of my 60 year uh, career and understand their mathematical equations that people try to simulate something that's going on uh, in nature. I tried to, when I was teaching at Ohio State, I tried to create a model that would tell my students when the trees uh, outside the window in the fall would begin to turn colors. And it was possible to uh, you know, get some general idea of it with a, a limited number of, of variables. But uh, what I've known is there are more variables that we really cannot know what they are to make an equation make any sense. And I am so excited about uh, having our guest, Pat Michaels on the show today because he knows infinitely more about models and modelers uh, than I'll ever know. So uh, this is going to be an exciting program, which I think every all of our listeners now, we've been happy to number over 30,000 in recent weeks, will be able to understand because Pat can explain it easily. So uh, go ahead and tell a little bit about Pat's background, and we'll get him on the show, Tom.
0: Yeah, sure. Dr. Patrick J. Michaels is a past president of the American Association of State Climatologists and was program chair for the Committee on Applied Climatology of the American Meteorological Society. He was a research professor of environmental sciences at the University of Virginia for 30 years. Dr. Michaels was a contributing author and a reviewer of the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, it is better known. Pat's writings have been published in major scientific journals, including Climate Research, Climatic Change, Geophysical Research Letters, Journal of Climate, Nature, and Science, as well as many popular series worldwide. He's the author or editor of eight books on climate and its impact, and he was an author of the Climate Paper of the Year, awarded by the Association of American Geographers in 2004. He has appeared on most of the world's major media, And he's a senior fellow at the CO2 Coalition, co2coalition.org, and the Competitive Enterprise Institute. So welcome to the show, Dr. Michaels. It's great to be here.
1: Let's go have some fun. You know, Pat, I literally remember the very day in my training when I was first introduced to models. And I'm wondering, you've been at it a very long time. As a climatologist, when did you first get involved with them during your career?
2: Uh, I got involved with with modeling in my PhD program at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and it became immediately apparent to me that what you got out of a model was clearly determined by what you put into it, and within certain broad limits, you can get pretty much any answer that you want. Well. That was, you know, 40 years ago. Now it has come out in the refereed literature that all these climate models, and I mean all of them, are so-called parameterized. That's polite speak for fudge. We put in figures for certain physical phenomena that we do not understand, and we put them in to get, as the author, Frederick Hordan, a very famous French climate modeler, said to get, I hope you're sitting down, I'm quoting from the paper, (laughs) a, quote, anticipated acceptable result, end quote. Wow. What that means is it's the scientist, not the science, that is determining the forecast for the 21st century.
1: Yeah, that is a terrific uh, explanation that I know all of our listeners will understand well.
2: If I could,
1: if I I could just
2: for a second. The the senior author of the paper is a guy by the name of Frederick Hordan, H-O-U-R-D-I-N. It's published in the Journal of Climate, which is a mainstream journal. And the title of the paper, which says it all, is called, quote, The Art and Science of Climate Model Tuning, end quote.
1: I've written about tuning, in fact, in writing an article with Tom to uh, promote your show with us this week. Uh, tuning, to me, is a a form of cheating, really. I mean, you, if you don't know the answer, you know, make it up so you'll come out with the result that you described earlier. So it is fascinating. It's a word that our audience should take into account. Now, well, as he- former president of the Association of State Climatologists, could you tell us if there Was politics involved and how it evolved over the last 20 years in your career?
2: You have to go even further back than that. Uh, You have to go back into the 1960s when the state climatologists were all wards of what is now the National Weather Service or NOAA. And the guy who ran the show then, an engineer by by the name of Bob White, once allowed that it was an incredibly unwise thing for NOAA to have gotten rid of the state climatologist program because they lost control over them. All these guys knew back then that global climate was going to be an issue because you could make it an issue. And now they had 50 independent people who probably weren't going to swallow the line from Washington because they had been ditched. And that is precisely what happened. The state climatologists were very independent. The government did its best to recapture them in its orbit by doling out various large amounts of money. They, they regionalized the state climatologists into the southeastern region, eastern region, et cetera, and then put big budgets in there. And so they eventually pretty much recaptured the organization. There are still holdouts among the state climatologists who don't do Washington's bidding and do real research. I would point out John Christie at University of Alabama at Huntsville as being primary in this. But yeah, they have recaptured it back. But there were decades where the state climatologists were really independent and I was lucky to be the president during one of those decades.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, then you move to a more world view from state climatology to be a part of the International Panel on Climate Change for the United Nations that I'm sure everybody has heard of because every few years they come out with worse and worse scare stories pretty much ignoring the science and just creating a horrible future for the earth if we keep using fossil fuels. What was your involvement with them and how did you tolerate it?
2: Well, I was asked to write uh, a brief section on the history of storm tracks, cyclone tracks, and things like that. And I think what I wrote was really not remarkable and pretty well known. I also was very critical of the models that were being used by the IPCC. And I remain so, you know, it's really funny. We have a new IPCC report that's about to come out uh, and it will give a range of warming from their various models, which are called the CMIP-6 models. And what you will see is the range of future that is predicted by those models in this report is greater than the range of future temperature change in the previous report. So the more money and the more people you throw at the climate problem, the less precise the science becomes. Do you know any other field like that?
0: (laughs) Sounds pretty ridiculous. (laughs) Do you consider
1: the International Panel on Climate Change, which most people know is called the IPCC, a scientific organization? And how much stock should the public, should our listeners put in anything they come out with in the press?
2: Well, the IPCC was chartered in the late 1980s with a mandate to come up with a summary of science for, quote, possible use in an international treaty on climate change. So those guys knew what they were supposed to do and they did it very well. Now, the problem is how scientific you see. How do you make a forecast for the next 100 years? Well, you do it pretty much the same way you make the forecast for the next 10 days. You have a large number of models to choose from both in short-term meteorology and long-term climatology. And you have some models that are working better than others. In a meteorology situation for a Midwest snowstorm, it's probable that the European model uh, is a little bit better than the American model. And so you will tend to rely upon the European model. That would be the best scientific practice. Uh, With regard to climate change, it turns out that there's about 105 different separate model slices and dices. And only one of them, one group of them, gets the past 40 years right, both at the surface and as we go up through the atmosphere. And that is the Russian models from their Institute for Numerical Mathematics, INMCM4 and INMCM4.8. Well, get this, guys. Why don't we rely on those models more than the others? Do you know why? Because they have less warming in them than all of the other models. They don't Mm. predict anything. This is disastrous. If we Mm. use them, and we should, because that's the best practice, is to use models that work, the issue would be gone tomorrow.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. Are they doing it out of nationalism that they don't want to use a Russian model, or what is it? Is it just the No, fact no, that- no. It's
2: money. I mean, if there's no problem, they all have to fly and coach.
1: <laughs> they can't do that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I, I love that statement. Now, the thing that has puzzled it's me. It's true. Oh, I, I, I hate, hate it you, too. <laughs> but I have known a handful of modelers over the decades, and they seem like honest, straightforward people. But I find it very difficult to believe they actually believe in what they're doing, that they actually believe in the answers that their models produce. And I have a feeling it's all about their funding. But then you have to say they're, they're unethical and uh, dishonest. And uh, no. all those that you know, what is your opinion? No, all they you feel? have
2: to do in that case is say that they're human. It's very interesting to look at the latest suite of the IPCC models, the ones that will be featured in the upcoming complete report. And what you will see, and I wasn't the person that pointed this out. This was pointed out by a guy by the name of Zeke Hausfather. I mean, he's a pretty standard green kind of guy. And he said, well, you know, a lot of these models are predicting more warming than in the previous suite of IPCC models. So let's take a look at how well they do at simulating, say, the past four decades. And guess what, guys? The warmer the model is, the more inaccurate are its predictions. Mm, Yeah. So uh, why do they exist? Well, again, let's go back to the earlier portions of this conversation. The models are tuned. And various parameters can be tuned, like the dissipation of heat within the ocean, for example, or the formations of certain types of clouds that give you a different temperature solution for the year 2100. By the way, the reason the Russian models don't have as much warming is because the heat capacity of the ocean in the Russian models is twice what it is in all the other models which means that the radiation change that will produce temperature has to be twice as much to produce a given temperature change. Now, is it right that the heat capacity is so high? You know who, no, you know, you know who knows the answer to that? God,
0: Yeah. no one else. We, yeah, we don't. <laughs> we sure don't. So people really shouldn't take the, the models seriously at all. I mean, the bottom line is that these are just guesswork.
2: I would take seriously the concept that if you increase atmospheric CO2, uh, you're going to get some warming. But some is not exactly a precise word.
0: (laughs) No, not exactly, because they're not saying we're going to spend some money. (laughs) I know that the current amount that's being spent on what they call climate finance around the world, they've tracked a billion dollars a day of it. And they say there's probably a lot more than that. but And the sad thing about it is that almost all of it goes to mitigation. There's almost none going to adaptation. So these computer models are driving them in entirely the wrong direction. So, Pat, just changing topic slightly, there was a frontline PBS video put out recently, and it says here about it, in an epic three-part documentary series, Frontline investigates the decades-long failure to confront the threat of climate change and the role of the fossil fuel industry. And they go on talking about how there was efforts to sow seeds of doubt among the the science. So I know you're in that video. What do you think of it? Uh, The use of epic should be followed by the word nothing
2: burger. (laughs) It was three and a half hours of sheer boredom. They never got to the point because they couldn't make a point. Mm -hmm. If you want to waste your time, download it and download it with a six pack because you're going to need it. (laughs) Uh, they, They had so many threads that they were trying to follow and they never picked up on any of them. There were three episodes. The first one was an hour and a half. I think I was on for about eight minutes and they accused me of you know, being involved in this campaign of disinformation and they threw some letters down on the table that had my name on them. And I looked at the interviewer and the producer said, I did not write these letters. Hmm. Somebody else wrote them, they were trying to get me to say something. And you will notice I did not sign them. Mm -hmm. And I quit this program because it was unscientific. Mm -hmm. By the time we got to the second episode, there's a throwaway line that says, oh, yeah, and the program was never run. And the third episode, all of a sudden, decides that methane, which is associated with, the fr- with fracking, is this horrible, horrible thing until they get to a paper that they sort of say, as an aside, well, actually, this was pretty much disproven. I mean, mm-hmm. three and a half hours of absolute wasted time. And I can supply more evidence for that.
1: I'd rather move to a simpler question that I know fascinates every listener to this program. uh, And really, everybody that hears anything about climate and weather, and we all hear about weather every day. What is the difference between weather and climate? How do you define it? And what is different about predicting it?
2: Well, the best line I've ever heard is, climate is what you expect and weather is what you get. Simply put, climate is the summation of weather. And if the boundary conditions say the sun gets hotter, which it can, or it can get cooler, i.e. the Little Ice Age ended around 1750 or 1800, then the climate's going to change. If you change the composition of the atmosphere in certain ways, yeah, the climate's gonna change. But that's never the point. When you you care about the daily weather forecast and that somebody says sunny and warmer, you don't care what the word, you wanna know what the word warmer means. Mm -hmm. What's the temperature gonna be? Is it gonna be 110? Is it gonna be 70? And with climate to say that it would warm up if you put CO2 in the atmosphere, Well, if you don't answer the question how much and how, you really don't have anything that's useful. Let me give you an example, a very concrete example. If you put CO2 in the air, and I published this paper back in 2000, got over 20 years ago, what you do is you warm up the coldest air of winter more than anything else. Mm -hmm. Um, And in fact, we showed that the more cold air there is, in other words, the deeper the cold, high-pressure system was coming out of Siberia, the more it warmed. It doesn't happen in the summer like that.
0: Uh, well, what's the problem
2: with that? <laughs> exactly. What is the problem with that? It is well known that many more people die in cold weather than die in hot weather. Even you know what has turned into the radical British journal Lancet um, has published this recently. So what's not to like about longer growing seasons and Mm -hmm. the stuff you put in the atmosphere makes the planet greener that's Mm -hmm. obvious and agricultural Mm -hmm. yields are increasing dramatically not just because of technology but because co2 makes plants grow better i really think we ought to pass a law to stop this what do you think
0: yeah for sure <laughs> i don't think that we want to restrict co2 at all if even if we doubled it i mean it wouldn't really be a problem would it
2: well you know horticulturalists and with greenhouses usually take the concentration up to about three thousand parts per million co2 wow. the ambient wow. concentration is about 415. they mm-hmm. do that to make things grow better and faster mm-hmm. and it, it, it's a lot cheaper than heat
1: well, I've had a thought for some time because there, are, I know so many of your friends that understand the situation and that there is no crisis looming, and but yet you, they write papers, as you do, trying to teach the science of climate and, and the lack of answers in trying to calculate climate in the future. I wish they would all begin their articles by saying it's really fascinating science to try and understand what are the variables that control the temperature of the Earth. But what we know for sure is that the impact of carbon dioxide is inconsequential. It may or may not be measurable. No one's measured it yet. But what we're sure of is that there are no significant negative impacts. And I think if all the people on our side would begin their articles or their speeches in that order, there would be less opportunity for the left who uses climate change to scare the public to keep saying, well, there are a lot of scientists that think there's an impact of carbon dioxide. They don't know how much, maybe they think it's small, we think it's big. I think we leave them too much room to tell their lies to the public.
2: Well, I think at the beginning of the program, uh, you got something a little bit off, where you said it's warmed about 1.2 degrees since 1880. Uh, That would be Celsius. I think the more accurate statement is it's warmed about one degree uh, since 1900. You cannot attribute the warming of the late 19th or early 20th century to changes in carbon dioxide. And Mm -hmm. there was a half a degree warming that occurred from 1910 to 1945. Uh, The CO2 concentration background was about 285 parts per million in 1850. By 1910, it was 298 parts per million. That's an increase of only 13 parts per million. Mm-hmm. If you want to make the assertion that that induced a warming of approximately a half a degree Celsius, given that the concentration is now 415 parts per million, it would be so hot, we wouldn't be recording this show.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, good point. So the atmosphere simply isn't that sensitive to CO2 That's, rise. that's the problem.
2: Mm-hmm. It's a question of sensitivity. And ironically, the models that have the lowest sensitivity to changes in CO2 are the ones that make the best forecast.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, that's crazy. Eh? I heard that the warming is, according to the models, most likely to occur at high latitudes in the winter at night, which doesn't sound like a bad thing to me. Well, is that? Yeah, that that's correct? also
2: according to, to reality. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, that 2000 paper that I published was big on that. Uh, What's not to like about a greener planet? Let's go back to 1900, what's happened since then? Well, life expectancy has doubled. Per capita wealth, depending upon how you measure it in the developed world has increased approximately 12 fold. And people are just living better lives. I'm not saying that CO2 caused this, but it sure as heck didn't stop it, did it?
0: No, that's for sure. We've got to take a break now. So we'll be right back with Dr. Michaels, Dr. Pat Michaels, a former professor, 30 years at the University of Virginia. He's now a senior fellow at the CO2 Coalition and Competitive Enterprise Institute. So we'll be right back. After the break. Look, I'd like to make a rocket
1: science out of it, but I can't. Povidone iodine nasal sprays work by reducing the viral load, reducing the viral burden, and making it easier for your body to overcome all these airborne pathogens. Do yourself a favor. Check out the banner ad on americaoutloud.com and use the promo code OUTLOUD to stay protected and get 20% off. Stay protected with Cofix Rx.
0: In today's world, there's no escaping the headlines filled with warnings about emerging viruses and dangerous superbugs. Genesis is the only technology that safely and effectively obliterates harmful pathogens both on the air and on surfaces. Genesis plus HOCL neutralize these threats to your environment in just seconds. Find out more about this amazing technology at genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a 15% discount. With Genesis, you'll be prepared for what's next. We're back with Dr. Pat Michaels, past president of the American Association of State Climatologists and a research professor of environmental sciences at the University of Virginia for 30 years. So, Dr. Michaels, there was a paper that just came out. Actually, it's a comment in Nature. It's entitled Climate Simulations Recognize the Hot Model Problem by among various authors, including Gavin Schmidt. So what do you think of that paper?
2: If you listen to the previous segment, where I talked about the new models being too hot and that the hotter they are, the worse they perform in the real world. That's pretty much what this says. Mm. Uh, and right. it's, it says we ought to not pay as much attention to these models, but it also says that scientists and others are emphasizing that these models are really hot and, gee, that's too bad because it means that it's worse than we thought. They suggest basically de-weighting, de-emphasizing these models that are, have these ridiculous warmings in it. And they they have a chart where they correct for the fact that they're too hot. And, you know, pretty soon, these guys are going to turn into lukewarmers like me. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's going to warm up, but sorry, it's not the end of the world. Uh, Uh I am sure that, that, this comment is going to cause very, very little change. It will be ignored. You know, we've got bigger fish to fry. We're leaking things from the Supreme Court. We're going to be having a Supreme Court decision on the 2007 carbon dioxide case coming out in the next month. This is going to get thrown in the background, except by, you know, me and my apparently few friends who are going to cite it all the time. Yeah, so it sounds like something we should promote.
0: Oh,
1: absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, as you know, every single change in the weather and certainly every storm, drought, and flood today is blamed by the left on man caused global warming, which is a result of carbon dioxide emissions from fossil fuels. But you were involved in a storm, hurricane, whatever, uh, in where I grew up in the metropolitan area of New York. And I know we have a lot of listeners in that area. And it's sometimes referred to as as Hurricane Sandy. In my knowledge, it was not a hurricane. It was kind of a perfect storm of a lot of problems that caused a lot of grief in the metropolitan area. Could you uh, give a little synopsis of that?
2: Yeah, it goes back to what we talked about in the first segment. Sandy was a very large storm in lateral extent. It was a late October storm, late season storms tend to have large extents. They also tend to not have extremely high winds. And in fact, Hurricane Sandy was not a hurricane when it made landfall. It was a a gigantic low pressure system. But the most interesting thing about Sandy to me was that there were two different forecasts for it. One was from the American GFS model uh, and about seven or eight days prior to the storm hitting land or uh, go, going over the east coast, it said, no, it's going to turn and go out to sea. Okay, But the European model, which is very, very good with Atlantic coastal cyclones, said, no, it's not going to turn east and go out to sea. It's going to turn west and hit the New York, New Jersey area, and it's gonna be probably a pretty big horror show. Well, forecasters for the daily weather don't have the irresponsibility of having to wait a hundred years to see how their forecast works out. They are in a here and now world and the forecast communities all over the US said, uh, sorry, we have to use the Euro model because that's got a better track record. Well, why don't we do the same thing for climate? Why don't we use the models that work? And in this paper in Nature Magazine that just came out today, they're arguing pretty much in that latter direction. Now I'm looking at the author list here. One of them, Kate Marvel, has tended to be a person who tries to blame everything on global warming uh, she's listed as the second author here. I think she, she pre- has probably had a come-to-Jesus moment and seen how horrible these models are and that there's
0: something wrong. Mm, that's good. That's good. So she, she's open, at least, to changing her position.
2: Right. And the, the, the lead author is Zeke Hausfather, who we mentioned in the first section, uh, the first person to point out in the scientific public that the hot models were just not working out very well. And uh, the title of this paper is called, quote, Climate Simulations Recognize the Hot Model Problem.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, there is not a single member of our audience that is not aware that the driving force in all the climate change discussions, all the global warming discussions Intends to stop all of us from using fossil fuels, which give off carbon dioxide emissions, which you already pointed out are all positive. The Earth is strive is thriving because of increased carbon dioxide emissions. But the public is trying to be convinced and successful uh, along much of it. That we have to stop using fossil fuels and we'd solve the problem. They certainly seem to be unaware that our entire standard of living is based on products that derive part of themselves from derivatives from petroleum. Many of our friends have documented 6,000 products that have increments of petroleum in them and our standard of living would go back way or more than a hundred years if we no longer used coal, oil, and natural gas. Why have the public, the world over, been able to be convinced of something so false, in your opinion? Probably because there's not a lot
2: of critical insight. Probably because people who realize that if you get a hold of the educational system for a generation, you can change systematic belief systematically. Mm-hmm. Uh, the real issue, of course, is this falsity that so-called n- renewable energy can easily substitute for natural gas and oil and, uh, and, and fossil fuels. It can't it's too intermittent. It doesn't produce enough power. It won't. And all these windmills that you see despoiling the landscape and these solar panel fields displacing cornfields, they are just a waste of money and time. The, The real future belongs to those who produce energy efficiently and cleanly. And I will tell you this, one of my marks as to whether a person is serious about global warming occurs with the following question. Well, what do you think about nuclear power? Oh, yeah, good got point. Increasing energy density, that is the way of history is we have gone from dispersed energy to increasing energy density. And that is the way of the future. To go back to dispersed energy, which is wind and solar, is to create an unstable electrical grid. It's not going to work. And when I ask a person about nuclear and they say, oh, no, 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 we can't do that. I just say, well, I dismiss you. You're, you're yeah. hypocritical. Let's go get a beer and not talk about this anymore. Bye. (laughs)
0: Yeah. But, you know, it's interesting, Pat, the greatest alarmist that I've seen on climate change was this fellow by the name of Rich, who was the head of the World Nuclear Association out of England. And we actually contested them. You know, we sent them a letter saying, look, you know, support nuclear power, of course. But the whole idea that you are going to stop climate change. I mean, that's absurd. And when the climate scare collapses, it will disgrace your organization and nuclear power at large. So, I mean, do you find that a lot of nuclear advocates are also advocating the climate scare?
2: Ones that probably have ulterior motives. You know, as Michael Schellenberger, that is named the guy out in Mm -hmm. California who wrote Apocalypse Never. Yeah, yeah. It's a tremendous book. And it uh, makes... Very serious and cogent arguments that if you care about climate change so much, you better advocate for nuclear and better stop advocating for so-called renewable energy. And by the way, the physics that we all took talking here on this program will tell you that there is simply no such thing as renewable energy, is there?
0: No, because you got to get the materials to make it, and that's highly energy intensive, and they use slave labor and you know terrible conditions. Of the Re- renewable renewable it. energy repeals uh,
2: all three laws of thermodynamics. <laughs> exactly. Exactly, it, it's
1: true. And even it, even, you even know, Barack
2: Obama could not repeal the first law.
1: <laughs> <laughs> is hard as he level might try. he tried, <laughs> but yeah. I. I reviewed Michael Schellenberger's book when it came out. Actually, I did a three-part series at uh, cfact.org, and the book is absolutely outstanding. I distrusted his motives a little bit because I knew him well uh, when he was a very strong leftist. He did a, a, a turnabout, I suspect, because he put his finger up into the wind and found out it was uh, going to be blowing stronger for him if he moved to a more conservative position. And he's an incredibly self uh, promoter of his work. He's done very well, but he is now pretty much claiming credit for the end of the decommissioning of the Diablo nuclear power plant in california yeah. which was scheduled to be shut in 2024 they are now extending it at least till 2035 and he probably did play a role it was i he think ran, he did yeah he ran for governor and it was a main issue and uh, so i think he does deserve a lot he's of also, credit
2: he's also running again
1: oh well i hope he gets elected that would be great to have at least a a sane, balanced person uh, in California. I have two daughters that live there and I worry about their future in a state that, that is crumbling everywhere you look.
2: Um, you know, I, I went to high school not far from Diablo Canyon. It was just a, about a half hour drive. And that plant is sited in a really stable Uh, pretty environment, and and they did everything they could to have it blend in with the landscape and all that good stuff. To me, California shutting down all its nuclear is just, would would be absolutely and completely foolish, and Diablo Canyon's all that they have left. Mm,
0: Yeah, exactly. One quick question I have, (laughs) it's totally off topic, but when I'm at a conference, in my peripheral vision, I often see a green flash, or I see a red flash, and I turn, and it's your shoes. Like, <laughs> what's the story behind your you know, iridescent shoes? <laughs> well,
2: it happens uh, about 25 years ago. I was in a hotel in Washington in a dark room, and I guess it was about 4 o'clock in the morning, and I jumped out of bed to go to the bathroom and the bed was much higher off the ground than beds that i'm used to i didn't time my leap right and i broke the joint in my left foot the big toe joint the big ball foot joint ouch Is right yeah and i didn't do anything about it i figured well what the heck turns out i could have done something about it so ever since then i've had to wear soft shoes and Hmm. most soft shoes were ugly So why not get some color in my wife? And that's where the shoes came
1: from. (laughs) Well, Pat, they're a tremendous trademark. Uh, My wife is a runner and she's got a lot of sneakers. And when she puts on a pair of uh, green and red, I tell her that she's playing Pat Michaels that day. (laughs) Yeah, And it's really great. I think everybody admires you for it.
2: (laughs) It's a funny story. Uh, I guess it did become a trademark. Uh, Yeah, uh, and then there were the other trademark that I used to good effect was carrying around a blow up globe, which showed how exaggerated global warming was in all the maps that people look at because they're Mercator projections. The all area right. of large warming is actually not all that
0: big. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause most of it's ocean. So you can hold it up and all they can see at ocean. Is... Or in the, they... nor-
2: in the Northern hemisphere, it's pretty much Northern Siberia, and Northern North America. Nobody lives there, so what big deal?
0: Yeah, but yeah, I think your shoes are a great idea because people can see you coming even in their peripheral vision. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well,
1: I've got a really practical question, a a tough one for you that I know all our listeners would like to hear a sound answer to, and that is how can people separate what they're told as science about climate from what is really about politics?
2: I think you've got to look at the data. And there are now an increasing number of sites that plot out what's really happening. You know, if you look at the computer models, they clearly are over predicting warming. If you look at surface temperature records, taken from thermometers, everybody knows there's some contamination in them because cities have a way of growing up around their weather stations, making the weather stations warmer from the urban heat islands. But if you look at satellite data, which doesn't have that problem, it has warming of about 60% of what's in the surface record. That's much less warming and is most consistent with the low temperature sensitivity models. In fact, John Christie from University of Alabama has published papers showing the model performance versus the surface temperatures and the weather balloons and the satellite data. And it's very clear that the weather balloons and the satellite data have got it right. And they are being tracked pretty close to 100% by those Russian INM CM4 models.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what would you forecast would be the impact of a doubling of CO2 if we actually did see that coming up in the next couple of centuries?
2: Well, I think, first of all, you have to throw out one half of a degree uh, of the degree of warming that's been observed because it occurred before we put much CO2 in the atmosphere. And so I, I I tend to follow the work of John Christie and Dick McNider at Alabama, and Judy Curry, who's retired from Georgia Tech, and Nick Lewis. And the sensitivity to a doubling of CO2 looks to be around 1.6 degrees Celsius.
0: Mm-hmm. I guarantee you, you're going to live. Yeah, yeah, I would think so. And also, doesn't that occur mostly at high latitudes? Yeah, and at night it sounds like it's a great thing
2: (laughs) well it is i mean there is a reason that people don't die in extreme weather very much anymore it's called adaptation there's a reason that life expectancy continues to go up and carbon dioxide has something to do with that because of better nutrition yeah we're not exactly creating hell on earth and the, the, the idea that a small change in temperature would result in all these disasters, is very Panglossian. It seems to indicate that, well, we must live in the best of all possible climates. You know, if we were studying this 14,000 years ago, would we say an ice age is the best of all possible climates?
0: hmm mm-hmm. And also, with the temperature mostly rising in high latitudes, wouldn't that lessen extreme weather? Because the differential between high and mid-latitude pressures and temperatures would actually reduce.
2: Yeah. It it is the, yeah, the temperature gradient between the pole and the the equator is largely what drives the jet stream, the kinetic energy of the jet stream. Uh And so you, if you get uh, the jet stream contributes a lot of the upward motion to surface cyclones and also contributes some of the twist to thunderstorms that turn into vortices called tornadoes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's probably going to relax a little bit. And while the data is pretty noisy, if you look at severe tornadoes, the ones that you don't even need radar to see, F3, F4, F5 tornadoes, they're not going to get missed. There appears to be a slight negative trend in their frequency since records become somewhat reliable in the early 1950s. At the same time, there is a large trend toward an increasing number of very weak tornadoes. And that has to do with the fact that we have better radar. WSD 88 Doppler radar can see the spin in thunderstorms much better than the old WSR 57, which really couldn't see it. And so you pick up these tiny tornadoes that don't cause any damage, and somebody goes, whoa, there's more tornadoes. Well, no. you got to look at the severe ones because they're the Mm -hmm. ones that count, and there's no increase, and I think some evidence for a decrease.
0: Yeah. So in other words, the forecasts of greater extreme weather with the slight warming that we could see, th- those forecasts are backwards.
2: I, I think for, for things like tornadoes, yeah. And I always like the notion that severe cold outbreaks are a result of global warming. <laughs> yeah. if, you yeah. that, if you believe that, you're like my neighbors out in the country who tell me, that if you put hot water in the ice cube tray, it freezes faster. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that's right.
1: I've heard that one, of course, because the the air goes out of it or something. But Uh, I've
2: I've actually run that experiment for skeptics. And no, it takes longer to freeze the the hot water than the cold
1: water. Well, I, I think that the cooling being caused by global warming is one silly lie that the public is not buying and will help us turn the corner, although it's going to be hard. I think every all of our listeners and, and we surely are confident that the election in November of 500 plus congressmen to seats in the House will shift the power of the House very strongly to the Republicans. A lot of people say... The Republicans are no better than the Democrats and they're largely right, but I'm seeing a new breed of people running for office who are going to get elected. What do you think a a significant shift of that nature uh, will do to the fraud that still pervades the entire world about man-caused global warming?
2: Well, the first thing that's going to happen is that Biden, if he remains in office, and that's a big if, or Harris, uh, if she succeeds him, will exceed their executive authority dramatically. Uh, And with a 6-3 conservative liberal split in the Supreme Court, they're just going to get slapped down every time they try it. It's going to make the, you know, Barack Obama's clean power plan was slapped down because there was no legislation behind it. And there's certainly going to be no legislation that's going to be pushing uh, these extreme policies after the new Congress comes in in January. So they're going to try and exceed their authority and they're not going to get very much.
0: Yeah. Now, if you were talking to the average person who's concerned about this, but they're not a scientist, they don't have a megaphone to the media. How would they work against the climate scare? Like, what would you recommend the average person do?
2: I would say that the average person should pay attention to easily accessible scientific records and, frankly, listen to this podcast.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I guess call in to talk radio shows and say, hey, I just heard X from uh, Pat Michaels and that's very different to what you're saying. I don't think you're right. you know. So it sounds like people have to be a little more outspoken, a little more active because their livelihood is at risk.
2: Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and trust me, this zero emissions or net zero craze is just insanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the United I mean, States kind of- can't be zero emission in 2050. The UK can't be zero emission in 2050. It's just impossible. And, you know, somebody's going to have to admit this. Boris Johnson, I think, is digging himself a real hole over there in the UK, probably thanks to his wife, who's a big greenie. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: Tomorrow night, there's a debate between the candidates for leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada. And so far, it looks like all of them are going to support the climate scare. They don't want to see Trudeau's quote, carbon tax, unquote, but they want to have other things like carbon sequestration or whatever. And so what would you say to frightened conservatives who think they have to support the climate scare or they just simply will fail in politics?
2: I think they ought to just talk about the facts. Mm -hmm. You know, here's some facts. Uh, You're living much longer. The amount of GDP that is destroyed by severe and extreme weather is going down, not up as Mm -hmm. percent of GDP, and your life is better. Mm -hmm. So what did that half a degree of warming have to do with that? Maybe not much. Mm -hmm.
0: And also, I was noticing a mortality record, which shows how many people actually died from extreme weather events. We're at virtually the lowest level in recorded history. (laughs) There's incentives for that,
1: you know? People want to live. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, it does amaze me. Every, every data, all statistics you read show that life is improving. Uh, hazardous and risky things are being minimized. Uh, in every walk of life, I'm a, a skydiver. and We make 3 million jumps a year in the United States. And the accident and fatality rate has uh, plummeted to levels never seen before uh, because people are safety conscious and technology of equipment has improved. And it's absolutely true in every walk of life. It's uh, mm-hmm. terrific. And yet the left tries to make the public think things are terrible and getting worse. It's amazing. Last question, Pat, what kind of work, What? Are, what's some of the work you're doing now other than traveling around and lecturing and trying to teach teach common sense to people, what are some of the other interesting things you're doing now?
2: Well, I've sort of branched out. My experience in climate has led me to look at other fields and to see if the same dynamics that are operating in the climate scare are operating in other fields. Well, they are. Uh, And I wrote, wrote a book on that called Scientocracy, in which we looked at regulatory science, science with regard to nuclear exposure and all kinds of nine different areas. And we found the same dynamics are occurring. The Problem is the government funds all the science and the scientists don't get the money unless they say the world's coming to an end. And that has very bad consequences. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Scientocracy. Okay. So we will put a link to this then under the podcast when it goes up on Monday. Scientocracy that sounds really interesting it was fun to write and it, yeah. it's nice to know that, that you know sin is universal <laughs> yeah exactly that's amazing and i imagine it probably applies to a fair bit of the covid stuff too
2: oh yeah I, I wish i were an expert in that because i have a feeling there's a lot of very funny things going on there
0: Oh, yeah. Like here in Ontario, they announced that they were going to start differentiating between death because of COVID and death with COVID. COVID, It took them two two years to figure that out. Yeah. Jeez. Well, you know,
1: uh, Pat, you may not have seen this statistic, but in the year 2020, not a single American died of old age. Really? (laughs) Oh, <laughs> they all died. It was COVID or something else. I mean, it, it yeah. didn't matter who you are, if you were, died. And you know what, when you put down on the death certificate, COVID, the hospital, has got a significant amount of money from the government.
2: Yeah, and I'm aware all of that.
1: Dri- all driven by money, really
2: a disgrace.
1: Yeah. But it's, it'll be exciting to read your book, Scientocracy, because I, I suspect it is true that it exists in every field. Uh, scare drives money and money drives people to do things that are unfortunately uh, not ethical.
0: Mm-hmm. And also our media. I mean, you know, they just simply exaggerate beyond all belief. I mean, who, for example, in the scientific community is actually saying that we have a climate emergency? Is there Nobody. A- Nobody. Yeah, right, and yet that's all over the press so i mean the press are just generally making this stuff up
2: yeah that's unfortunate but true but on the other hand the scientific community doesn't exactly jump up and down and say there is no climate emergency they let these guys do their dirty work for them yeah
0: yeah yeah exactly well on that note (laughs) we have to wrap up it's been dr pat michaels as our guest today past president of the american association of state climatologists He was also a research professor at the University of Virginia for 30 years. He's now with CO2 Coalition and the Competitive Enterprise Institute. So thanks very much, Pat, for being on our show today. I enjoyed it. I hope you did. Okay, great. So this is Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris signing out from the other side of the story.